Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Matthew. Episode 245, recorded for the week of January 31st, 2024. The Cloud Pod is the Zbomb. S-bomb? S-bomb? I don't, I don't yeah. know. It's Sabom. Sabom? Sabom? Yeah. Sabom. I hate that name. That's I, of all the things that came out of the Solar Winds uh, attack, S bomb is the one that drives me most crazy. So I'm like, why is it such a terrible name? So. Uh, hi, Matt. How's it going? Good. How are you, Justin? Good. It's just the two of us. I don't know. Like, have we recorded just the two of us before? I think maybe once. Maybe it's once, not, but yeah, it's not no. very often. But yeah, I feel like our is. goal is normally at least three of us. So like, we'll adjust until all three of us, until at least three of four can make yeah, it. Yeah, so. as typically what we try to do. But, uh, you know, Ryan decided he wanted to go, you know, use his hands and do something non-techy for a while, you know, for the weekend. So he's uh, he took an early week off or early day off and is flying somewhere to help a friend with remodeling. I'm like, oh, that sounds fun. And then Jonathan uh, had some other commitments he had to deal with. So, you know, we're here and we're uh, we're just going to do it together. You're stuck with me. Yeah. No, I think, yeah. it, I think it'd be great. Yeah, but uh, first up, this is your last uh, chance that I'll talk about it here on the show. But uh, I will be on a panel at Google's Sunnyvale office for the C2C or the Cloud to Cloud uh, something or other gathering summit and the uh, Cloud Optimization Summit. Uh, you can come and join the talk uh, to hear all things about Gen AI and Cloud Ops. Uh, this is your invitation to come. I'd love to see you there. I will have some stickers, and in our show notes, you can find the link to go sign up for free. It is free. Uh, my my session is, happens to be in the afternoon. Uh, so you don't actually have to get up early to come to mine, which is kind of the best of both worlds. So not only do you go be into a bunch of Google people and Google users, but you don't have you can come see my talk in the afternoon, which I think is a win-win. Was that your requirement of doing the talk? Is that it was in the afternoon? No, no. I, I whenever I get volunteered or, or sign up for these type of things, I always assume I'm going to be the 7 a.m. session that no one comes to. <laughs> uh, so yeah, no, I was pleasantly surprised that they were showing me the agenda. They're like, yeah, your talk is going to be at three o'clock. And I'm like, that's super cool. Uh, and it's a panel talk, so I don't even have to present slides. I just had to talk, uh, which I'm really good at doing, if you hadn't noticed from the podcast. I would never guess. <laughs> never guess, yeah. So, so you're just going to ask me questions, and I'm going to talk off the cuff? I can do that any day of the week. Not a problem. Uh, so there we go. All right, well, some uh, general news this week. Amazon is abandoning their $1.4 billion deal, as there is apparently no path to regulatory approval in the European Union. Uh, ultimately, uh, I'm not really surprised. Uh of course, after the announcement of this uh, deal closing out, uh, iRobot then proceeded to lay off 350 employees, or about 31% of its workforce. In addition, the CEO, Colin Engel, who co-founded the company, stepped down from the CEO position and his chair position. Uh, Amazon gets to pay the privilege of $94 million to terminate the, uh, terminate the acquisition deal to iRobot, uh, which apparently will help, off some, uh, help pay off some loan that iRobot took last year to help float them until the deal closed. Uh, so iRobot may not be in great shape uh, financially or in the future. I don't know. I think there's a lot of com- competition has got added into the robot vacuum space, uh, as well as I think, um, you know, when Amazon made this bid to buy this multiple years ago, it was a whole different economy than it is today. Yeah, I mean, there are so many more competitors now that are out there. And I think about 10 years ago, I had an iRobot. And, you know, it was always a fun thing. I, I bought the one that you could hack and plug in and Except your own infrared and everything. And it just really decided to eat wires all the time and die. You know, so, mm-hmm. but it doesn't surprise me that this is dying. I had the same problem uh, with my iRobot. I still love it though. Um, but uh, my house is a single story. And so it, it has a challenge to map the whole house of portraits out of memory. So uh, it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't one of those things I use all the time, but I do like it uh, occasionally to have it run through my kitchen. 
uh, you know, when it needs to be done without having to pull out all the vacuums that are in the house. Yeah. All right. Terraform uh, fork open tofu has officially launched into general availability. This milestone is after four months of development effort with hundreds of contributors and over five dozen developers committed to the effort. Uh, now they have a stable version separated from the main Terraform product. They are promising a steady set of new features and enhancements. Uh, the GA version is open tofu 1.6, which is a thousand times faster than uh, Terraform got to 1.6, <laughs> which includes hundreds <laughs> of enhancements, including bug fixes and performance improvements. One of the big features is a replacement for the Terraform registry, which you can now run cheaper and is developed, uh, developed faster than ever before. They're saying a 10x faster and 10x cheaper to run. Uh, and this is all driven by an RFC for client-side state encryption, which was submitted by a community member that they had attempted to get into Terraform. Oh, sorry, that's the other thing. The RFC for client-side encryption also was added, which was something a community member had submitted in 2016 to Terraform and HashiCorp never picked it up. So now you can actually encrypt your states locally. Uh, or wherever you're storing your state if you're doing like a remote object store. Uh, and then the next version of OpenTofu is set to introduce even more significant upgrades, and the project developers are working on a plugin system that will make it easier for users to extend the core open source with custom features in the future. So, nice to see. Yeah, I really like, you know, this was one of the features that they touted that was going to be an OpenTofu, which was, we will actually help you encrypt your file versus Terraform, which refused to do it, partially because they wanted you to move to, you know, CF Cloud or Terraform Enterprise. Um, but I'm kind of curious to see how this goes. I read an interesting article that was like tools with names like Open Tofu with like, you know, funny names like that tend to have a problem getting traction in enterprise communities because it's really hard to turn to your CFO and be like, we're going to go all in on, t- on, you know, Open Tofu with a straight face to your CEO who is going to be like, what, what, why are we talking about Tofu in the office? So it was an interesting article to see if they actually would work or not. But, you know, they, they cited some examples, which I don't remember. I mean, there's so many weird software company names out there that I don't know that a CFO would really blink twice at Open Tofu. Like, as long as you know what it is and it's a dev thing and you're, you're, you cloudy people are happy with it, but I don't care. That's how I think most CFOs would probably think about it. They might make fun of it. I, 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 would see, I can see they're making fun of the name. That I can see. <laughs> They're going to make fun of it. And also, if you're a CFO, it's like, is it going to save me money or not? I feel like, and you would say, I'm not going to Terraform Cloud, which, you know, per resource level really kills you. Yeah, I'm not buying Terraform Enterprise. So, yes, you're saving money. You're welcome. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I definitely think it's going to be interesting. And the nice thing is it's underpinning a bunch of other projects that were using Terraform open source um, that are not bad projects like Spacelift and some of the others. So, you know, I think yeah. overall, I think... You know, this is the closest they'll ever be to each other. And then from here on out, you know, open tofu could go in a completely different direction than Terraform does. And that's okay. Like you either decide to buy and go along with what they're doing or you won't. And we'll see if it, you know, has legs or not. But, uh, you know, I think HashiCorp has been kind of closed minded in what they could do in many ways. And so I am kind of curious to see where the community takes it, uh, which is the, bl- the blessing and the curse of open source, of open source, right? Yeah, I mean, at my day job, I've thought about, you know, what we're going to do. And right now I'm like, we'll just stick with it, you know, and we've just version pinned ourselves at whatever it was, like 1.6 or whatever it was, and just said, we'll leave it here. We don't need any new features. And from here, we can always decide which way we want to fork, you know, if we want to flip it over and kind of go from there. Um, you know, we're using just like Atlantis and general open source tools either way. So I don't have a problem kind of merging this other direction you know if that if if i can but you know i need to be i want to make sure and you know large enterprises want to make sure that you know 
Ubuntu Fu is not going to be a fad that comes and goes and everything else. So it needs to get enough traction that people are willing to start to use it in order to get everyone else to kind of on board. So it needs that, you know, snowball effect to kind of start off. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think the opportunity will be for, you know, companies like Spacelift and N0, et cetera, to basically get, you know, people adopting their products over Terraform Enterprise. That's going to be one avenue to really kind of get open tofu adoption. And then, yeah, the other one's going to be, you know, just general, you know, can people get excited about it? Is there something that's compelling for people to use it? So, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I'm curious about all the extra features. You know, the big one they always touted was like, we will finally encrypt your state file, which will make everyone happy. Yeah, which is like such a minor feature, which is why I was always dumb that HashiCorp wouldn't do it. Right. So like, I'm curious now about all the other features. And, you know, at one point I read when they first, when all this first happened and they announced OpenTF and everything else. And it was like, what are, you know, and they had listed out a lot of the features. And now I'm kind of curious to see if all those features will make it in. And I'm excited. Yeah. Not gonna lie. We'll definitely be curious to see kind of, you know, they have a roadmap. It's all in GitHub, of course. So this is, uh, you know, so things that I'm seeing so far are all kind of minor stuff. They just bug fixes and and things. But like 1.7 is the next major one, uh, which implements the state encryption, uh, you know, adding support for a for each and import block, adding support for remove blocks, so bringing release flow and for stable release from pre-release, mocking providers for tests. Like those are all pretty minor things. 1.8, they're saying automate backports with a bot. Which that'd be kind of nice. I'm intrigued by that idea, yes. but uh, you know, again, like those are just minor things, and yeah, I think they they had to kind of figure out what their roadmap's going to look like from here. But uh, yeah, it's good. All right, well, let's move on to uh, AWS. Amazon VPC is now supporting idempotent creation of route tables and network ACLs, allowing you to safely retry creation without additional side effects. Idempotent creation of route tables and network ACLs is intended for customers that use network orchestration systems or automation scripts that create route tables or network ACLs as part of their workflow. Ten years ago, it was called and really wanted this feature. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I, uh, <laughs> how many uh, how many Terraform files have you had for VPC where you're basically like, yeah, just ignore changes. You know, like you yeah. don't don't do anything because. Amazon's always changing route tables dynamically and they're always never matching state and it's always trying to apply some change. And you're like, yeah, just ignore all that. <laughs> yeah, you know, especially, you know, when you start to like peer stuff or you have like anything else uh-huh. going on, like you're not going to backport it to there and you can do individual resources and it's not even worth it. I mean, at least Terraform helped with this a little bit, you know, yep. a little bit, you know, but like back in the day when I, you know, definitely had some, Python scripts and bash scripts that created VPCs or cloud formation, you know, all these things just kept always just take down VPCs because of this, you know, also the retry on route tables to update was like so slow always. So hopefully they fix that issue too with this. Yeah. Well, the nice thing is they finally like released. Yeah. Why now of all the time? We've been asking this forever. Uh, I mean, I remember watching cloud, you know, doing VPCs in CloudFormation and be like, oh, I hope I don't mess this up. I hope I didn't mess this up because this is CloudFormation. It's going to take at least 20 minutes to run the CloudFormation to begin with. And then, yeah, it's like, we're creating route tables, modifying route tables. And you're like, oh, no, (laughs) you don't know what's going to (laughs) happen. It's all bad in CloudFormation days. And this is before there was change sets and all those things. So you were like, every time you were like, please, you like turn and cover. You're like, please don't blow up production. Please don't blow up production. Yeah. 
I forgot to, I forgot that change sets didn't didn't exist at launch. Uh, yeah, it's so dangerous. Launch, they didn't <laughs> exist for like for years. No, uh, I know. It's it, just, hold on. Real time searching. <laughs> formation change set release. So cloud formation oh. itself was announced was introduced in February of 2011. So uh, 2018, January 22nd. So, yeah. seven, seven years, years before they got it. Well, and the only reason they even really got it was because Terraform, Terraform. had. At least they had it, and if they hadn't done it, would Amazon have built it? I just don't know. I mean, no. I mean, the real reason I feel like I started using Terraform was because I could actually see what I was going to do versus like pray. I can't believe it was 2011 that CloudFormation was launched. That's over 10 years. It almost, it's going to hit. It's going to hit its 15th birthday in 2026. It's not that far away. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, get there. It's almost drinking some countries. Yeah, it's almost. All right. Well, last week, Google announced that you can integrate Prometheus with Cloud Run, and AWS said, hold my beer this week, because uh, you can now integrate the AWS Lambda telemetry, metrics, logs, and traces, and integrate that into open source observability and telemetry solutions like OpenSearch uh, or others. Uh, this Lambda telemetry API that they're using for this uh, was technically announced in 2022, but I missed it somehow. So you know, there you go. This uh, API replaced the Lambda logs API, which was always very limited. So I'm glad to see they actually killed that. Uh, an extension subscribed to the API can send this data directly from AWS to Prometheus or OpenSearch, as well as with a plethora of other software vendors they connect to, like New Relic and others, uh, who you can ship all of your Lambda API data to. I love the direct integration. I don't need to put Lambda back on the middle, just yep. immediately take my stuff and shove it into OpenSearch or shove it into Prometheus. Like, don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with the toil. Just point A to point B and I'm done. Take care of it for me. I'm a lazy person. There's a reason why I like the cloud. I don't want to deal with this. Yeah, exactly. Well, the nice thing is if you're sending it to OpenSearch or you're even sending it to Prometheus, it's a pretty standardized input format to both of those. Yeah. So if, if you want to use some other, something else that at least understands either you know, an OpenSearch uh, JSON object or XML or Prometheus, then you can just plug that in too. So like, you know, endpoint at the end of the day is really all that matters at this point. So it's kind of nice because you get a lot of flexibility here or you can build your own plugin too. Uh, if you really want to be so inclined, but I don't. So just open search is great. I'll take that. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, Datadog used to have like a full Lambda layer where they sent it all. Yeah, and that got deprecated with this with this Lambda API, I think, as well. Because oh, they, okay. they, they adopted the open telemetry, and then basically they just, they just work on that. Who's the last time I tried to integrate Datadog with AWS? Where like yeah. finding the layer, integrating it was like its own nightmare. I mean, just dealing with Datadog billing is its own nightmare. So it's... Uh, At one point, somebody asked me if they could help me estimate, if I could help them estimate um, what it would cost to, like them to be on Datadog. And I looked at it, I was like, this can't be that difficult. And then I was like, Microsoft billing might make more sense than this. Yeah. Like, understanding licensing might make more sense. Yeah, when I when I was at the FinOps Foundation last year and I was talking to some of the, the FinOps vendors and they're like, yeah, we're pulling your Datadog data now. And I'm like, okay, if we've gotten to FinOps for Datadog, like that's a problem. <laughs> like <laughs> You've done it wrong. <laughs> something has gone terribly, terribly wrong in the model. So yeah, that's, uh, it's, it can be pretty ugly up there. Uh, for those of you in regulated environments, you may be familiar with the SBOM or Software Bill of Materials. Uh, this is one of the many recommendations after the supply chain attack on SolarWinds a few years ago. And now Amazon Inspector has the ability to export a consolidated SBOM for supported Amazon Inspector monitored resources, unless it's Windows EC2, then you're screwed. That's why I'm going to be in one of the two industry standards, either Cyclone uh, DX or SBDX. 
Uh, and you know, I'm glad to see this is an inspector. It seems pretty limited in the fact that it only covers basically what you've installed uh, via you know apt-get or yum or or uh, any of the other many package managers. Uh, so it, it isn't a full SBOM solution, but it is a step in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, I'm noticing even in various industries, like they're asking for if you're any sort of software vendor installing an agent or anything on other people's computers, they're starting to ask for SBOMs, um, whether regulatory or not, which mm-hmm. in theory, you if you have other tools like Sneak, I know can do it. There's a couple open source ones, but generating it directly is a nice feature. Not having Windows into, you know, is... Doesn't surprise me. It's not a day one feature, but you know, kind of feels like it's a table stake almost at this point. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're going to have to support Windows, but the problem again because Windows doesn't really have a standardized package manager. Like, how do you even how do you even determine what that answer is? Um, you know, this is an area that I've actually looked at much. I know I'm aware of it. I've done some work with it from source code, but I've not done it from you know an infrastructure component level. But I imagine doing it from a Windows box perspective is very difficult. Yeah, I've done it only from, you know, scan my code type of thing and tell me what's in there, which mm-hmm. isn't that difficult to that point to do. Yeah, well, that's why SNCC does it, because SNCC yeah. isn't very difficult. <laughs> so. yeah. uh, well, last week, Google announced a few billion dollar uh, expansion of data centers in the UK, and Amazon has again responding with the announcement that they will be expanding their Japanese data center footprint with a $15 billion plus investment that will complete through 2027. Expansion will be particular for the Tokyo and the Osaka region, which covers both of their Japanese region. Uh, this apparently will help with mounting pressure from both Microsoft and Google, who have recently uh, Google has recently opened a data center outside of Tokyo, and Microsoft has of course operated data centers in Tokyo and Osaka for a while. And this will allow them to continue to expand AI and all the other Amazon magic to continue to grow that market. At one point, I just wonder how much is actually in those data centers. You know, are they, uh, you know, Amazon and, you know, I would have said Microsoft before the Australia outage ran their own data center, you know, but like, so if AWS is really going full on building full data centers for everything, or are they just taking sections of local data centers and just Amazonifying them? Let's go with that being a real word. <laughs> I mean, I would imagine that they're buying, but I, I honestly couldn't tell you for sure. Yeah. I mean, at one point, especially on Japan or New Zealand, right? these other smaller island countries, you know, there's only so much room and so much power. So, like, you got to fit it all in a certain area and local zoning regulations and everything else kind of has to make certain things work. So, one day, we will, some, there'll be some leaked documents to kind of tell us all this information. Hopefully, hopefully very soon. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, you know, I don't know, Ryan's not here, sadly, today to talk about how much he loves ETL tools like Glue <laughs> and the complexities of those oh. type of tools uh, require. Uh, and so Amazon has heard that and said, you know, hey, if you're struggling with the complexities of ETL and Glue, we can fix that with uh, or make it worse. In your opinion, of Amazon Q, uh, the Amazon Q data integration for AWS Glue is a new chatbot powered by Amazon Bedrock and understands the natural language to author and troubleshoot your data integration jobs. Uh, and you can describe your data integration workload and Amazon Q will generate the complete ETL script as well as you can troubleshoot your jobs by asking Amazon Q to explain errors and propose new solutions. Q will provide detailed guidance and will help you learn and build your data integration jobs faster and simpler. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. I mean, I don't really like ETL tools. I've seen a lot of stuff with the natural language and how it kind of all you know, works. And if it does integrate, it can be actually pretty cool. Now, 
I will probably just end up being that, you know, bits from last night webpage when I have to start talking to Amazon Q about fixing why my ETL job is working, where it will mainly just be a sum of swear words at it. And it will probably just shut down my AWS account because of that profanity. But, you know, it would be nice to just say, hey, how do I fix this error? And it's like, oh, do this thing and it will work, you know. So I get why it's going to be useful, but, you know, we'll kind of see how it ends up. And if it actually is, I mean, it's in preview. So, which I think most of Q is in preview still. So, oh, we'll see. Yeah. I, I am sort of curious how it's going to work out. You know, like, oh, uh, you know, Amazon Q, write me uh, a data ingestion job for this bucket to Redshift, right? And it's going to, you know, but then like it has to understand something about your data model, doesn't it, to be able to do that? Or is it just going to create you a, like a little piece of scaffolding and be like, here, this will do it. And it's just a select star from S3 <laughs> and just <laughs> just dump it in Redshift, like raw. Like, it, you know, it might be quick. It might be easy. It might also cost you a hundred million dollars. <laughs> so just be careful. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I would definitely, um, especially with how reliable Amazon Q has been in the AWS console, uh, which is not very reliable, uh, <laughs> I would definitely wait for this one to mature quite a bit first. I mean, this is a good place to put it. Places where people swear at computers is a good place to try to shove any AI to help people out. So mm-hmm. not disagreeing where they're trying it. I just think that I'm just going to be yelling more at it, which is going to make me hate it more. Yeah, well, I mean, then it's already hard enough to understand what ETL code is typically doing to then add a, a middle layer robot into the that's going to try to generate it dynamically from your instructions and then have to troubleshoot that. It's going to be awful. So yeah, the swearing is going to be intense. Well, I can think, I'm still think of is Clippy popping up and being like, <laughs> you are swearing too much. Have you tried to do this other thing? And I understand Microsoft, but like, that's where my head goes. I guess we could go like, you know, Q from James Bond popping mm-hmm. up and being like, you know, that's a little bit more sophisticated. No, no, I, I much prefer the Clippy. It appears yeah. you're trying to create a data integration. <laughs> Would you like help? God, insert, insert, Uh All right, well, let's move on to our friends in uh, Mountain View with GCP. Uh, so they post, post a blog post this week, four ways to reduce cold start latency on Google Kubernetes engine. Apparently, that's because Lambda cold starts are all the rage back in the day. They want to be part of that coolness now as well. And uh, while these, uh, well, I appreciate these approaches, uh, shouldn't MLA help us just fix this problem by now? Like, you know, auto scaling Kubernetes clusters and containers and pods. And like, shouldn't that all just be magic? Like, why do I have to think about this? Uh, but basically, techniques to overcome cold starts they are recommending, which is not MLAI, shocker. Uh, one, use ephemeral storage with local SSD or larger boot disks, which provide you higher throughput for a read-write compared to PD-bounced disks. Uh, number two, enable container image streaming, which allows you to, your image to start without waiting for the entire image to be downloaded. Uh, the example they gave was a GK image uh, for the NVIDIA Tryon server, or Triton server. 5.4 gigabyte container image is reduced from 191 seconds to 30 seconds. Uh, the third one is use the standard compressed container images, which is natively supported in container D or use a preloader daemon set to preload the base container on nodes. So this is a, a really well-written article by Bard, so I appreciate that. <laughs> so move data closer. Make your data be smaller so it's faster to load. Mm-hmm. Press your data and pre-launch it so it's there. So, you know, do all very logical things that, you know, you would naturally kind of do as you're, debugging why but like 
I understand everything in the world needs to be event driven and, you know, it's all awesome like that. And welcome to totally get it. This is what I do every day, but it's okay to have a few second cold start on stuff. Like, do you really need your model to load or anything to load at that exact second? And is it okay if it takes a second? So make sure you're actually solving a real problem here that's actually affecting your business, not just, you know, something that you think is a problem. Because I feel like most people like to think this is a problem and it actually isn't. It's like the amount of cold starts and lambdas that I actually had problems with, except for one customer that was full on Java based, which Java, it always is slow to do everything, you know, wasn't that high. So like if you make sure you're just solving a real problem that you're running into versus a fun tech problem. Yeah, could be. All right, Google is announcing the general availability of custom org policies to help tailor resource guardrails with confidence. Uh, of course, organizational policy service can help you control resource configurations and establish guardrails in your cloud environment. And now with the custom organization policies, you can now create granular resource policies to help address your cloud governance requirements. The new cable comes with a dry, uh, dry mode that lets you safely roll out new policies that impacting your production environments. The custom or policies adds the ability to create and manage your own security and compliance policies that meet and address changes to your organizational business requirements. Uh, prior to this feature, you could only select from a library of more than 100 predefined policies, which maybe didn't fit your organization. Uh, custom or policies can be applied at the organization, folder, or project level, and security admins can craft custom constraints tailored to the specific use case through console, CLI, or an API in a matter of minutes. Uh, custom or policies can help you meet regulatory requirements including HIPAA, PCI DSS, and GDPR, for your own organizational compliance standard. Uh, a couple of examples of how you might want to use this. Uh, GKE auto upgrade, for example, can be set uh, by setting the resource.management.auto upgrade equals true. And you can set that into a resource policy that will then get enforced against all of your GKE uh, clusters. Uh, your GKE platform team will cry very angry at you uh, doing this, probably. Uh, or another use case is you can restrict virtual machines to a specific image type, like the N2D, for cost or compliance reasons. Uh, you know, there is a quote here from Babak Bahaman, uh, Production Security Manager at Snap. Staying true to our mission of safeguarding Snap's production infrastructure, we are continuously evolving and looking for new opportunities to establish access and policy guardrails. We're excited to see custom organizational policies go GA as we plan to adopt this product to help us enforce, among other things, GKA constraints associated with CIS benchmarks. All right, so I have a write-in from Ryan because we messaged him about this. Sounds yep. great, but you'll never figure out how to get the CIEL to do what you actually want. <laughs> yeah, so CEL is basically their custom mark, uh, common expression language for these custom org mm. policies. Uh, and I have honestly not really looked at them too much, but uh, you know, it looks like uh, mm. just a really bad YAML file. So I imagine it, uh, it is difficult to make it work properly. I will say though, you know, while it is great that they have the top 100 to get 90, you know, 80% of people off, you know, once you do get to an organization scale size, you know, of a larger size like Snap or any of these other ones, you know, you you do want to start to build those custom policies, you know, and SCPs, you know, same thing with Control Tower. They had the predefined ones and now you can, you know, slowly start to define your own. So, um, you know, this is a good feature that larger organizations, I would say probably most people aren't going to touch this. It's always good to see them give you the ability to do that. Oh, that's it for Google. Easy peasy. With two of us, we fly through these, I feel like. Yeah, we fly through them. I mean, it just had the nature of it because Jonathan's not here to talk about it in British and Ryan's not here to say this is garbage. So it just happens to go through quickly. 
Uh, all right, Azure. Uh, Microsoft AI coding product becomes a weapon in the battle with AWS. Shocker. I don't know if you, you could believe that would happen. Uh, apparently, Microsoft AI coding products are helping to become the weapon that will fight for cloud customers. And they point to a example from Goldman Sachs, uh, apparently who's been using for years a mix of GitHub, GitLab, and other code repositories uh, that has increased their, but they have increased their spend by almost $10 million uh, annually with Azure as they adopt GitHub Copilot for its 10,000 software developers. Uh, so yeah, no duh. If you have really great AI products, people are going to want to use them. And if they use them and you have a pass, a fast path to their cloud, then it all makes sense that you would end up using more money on Azure. So, you know, this is the reason why AI, you know, AI can be an existential threat for uh, AWS, you know, or at least move them from the number one slot to the number two spot or number three spot if they're not careful, uh, which is why you're seeing frantic investments in all things bedrock and AI. I will say Goldman Sachs is actually interesting because I thought they were one of the main funders of GitLab. Maybe it, that was back in the day, but you know, at w- one point they were, I thought, the main contributor and funder of GitLab. So I figured that they would kind of stay included in that world, but it doesn't surprise me that they're expanding outwards. Yeah. I mean, it just makes sense. Especially an organization that size too. You know, you are, you are I'm sure, using Outlook and Word and Excel. So like, Integrating with some of these other things just is a no-brainer, too. Yeah. In uh, an article that I had to read the entire thing to understand what they were talking about, because the title was Improved Exports Experience. <laughs> Which type of exports? What's the experience of exports? AI wrote it. It's fine. I know. A, ter- terrible. <laughs> well, like someone in product should be fired at Azure for this one. Uh, but this is basically introducing a new and improved experience to export your FinOps data with the automatic exports of additional costs impacting data sets. The updated exports are optimized to handle the large data sets for enhancing the user experience. And so, the, uh, looking at the screenshots of this one, you know, you can set up different schedules, you can set up different, you know, delivery locations, either buckets or email addresses or whatever other horrible way you want to get your FinOps data around. Uh, but most importantly, uh, it does support the new Focus format, so you can export your data in the old garbage Azure format, as I like to call it, or you can move to Focus and get the new fancy Focus format in your automated exports. What I do like is the focus format, which also combines the actual and amortized costs, which really helps when you are doing FinOps things like buying savings plans and reservations, which their old stuff really wasn't good at showing you in an easy way. Or if it was, I wasn't good at doing it. Let's go with that way. Also, I think the amount of people that we think should be fired in product marketing departments means that all product marketing departments should be fired by now. I mean, maybe I just don't understand what product marketing people are supposed to do. I just don't. I mean, product marketing is a whole other thing. It's not product management. It's product marketing. <laughs> so you have to be, uh, you have to figure out how to make your product sell. I assume this would be like a creative writer, though. Like, yeah, but maybe yeah. I'm wrong. I mean, I wouldn't fire Jeff Barr. I think Jeff Barr does a great job at this. Is he product marketing? He's a. I mean, I don't know what. I mean, he's. A, <laughs> I mean, an evangelist is basically a product marketer. I mean, like, there's nothing fancy to what they, they get. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, this the, the title leaves everything to be desired. Left on the table, be desired. Yeah. Well, I have Oracle news this week. Uh, they finally said something that I thought was interesting, and it, that thing is AI. <laughs> so apparently, Oracle's realized that you can make money with AI, particularly generative AI. Uh, so Oracle in this article basically acknowledges that AI has captured the imagination of enterprise executives. Uh, I, personally, I think it's the part where they reduce headcount, but that's just me. 
Uh, Oracle states that enterprises need AI that can impact business outcomes and that models need to be fine-tuned or augmented by an organization's data and intellectual property designed to deliver outputs only a model familiar with an org can deliver. Uh, Oracle contends that you need AI at every layer of your stack from your SaaS apps, your AI services, data, and infrastructure. Imagine that, all things that Oracle sells. Oracle set out uh, to carefully think about the enterprise business processes and how they could enhance with generative AI, creating an end-to-end generative AI experience that encompasses their entire application and infrastructure stack. Uh, Oracle contends that AI at Oracle is designed to be seamless, not piecemeal parts or tools that have, you have to assemble into a do-it-yourself project. Which I think is straight against AWS, but I'm not entirely sure on that. Maybe maybe Google? Uh, there's a quote here from Chief Research Officer at Wikibon, Dave Valente. Oracle is taking a full-stack approach to enterprise generative AI. Oracle's value starts at the top of the stack, not in silicone. By offering integrated generative AI across its Fusion SaaS applications, Oracle directly connects to customer business value. These apps are supported by autonomous databases with vector embeddings and run on high-performance infrastructure across OCI or on-prem with dedicated region. Together, these offerings incorporate a highly differentiated enterprise AI strategy covering everything from out-of-the-box RAG to a broad range of fine-tuned models and AI infused throughout the integrated stack. Uh, our research shows that 2023 was the year of AI experimentation. Capabilities such as this, our expectation is that 2024 will be the year of showing ROI in AI. And of course, you might be asking yourself, but Oracle doesn't have anything in generative AI. Well, you'd be wrong, because they announced it in this blog post too. <laughs> so they've announced several things, including the OCI Generative AI Service, which is an AI service that supports Llama 2 and Coheres models. They might multilingual embedding capability for over 100 languages. They've also added improvements to make it easier to work with LLMs with functional such as LangChain integration, endpoint management, and content moderation. They've also announced the OCI Generative AI Agent, as a, you know, everyone wants an agent these days. Agents translate user queries into tasks that Generative AI components perform to answer the queries. The first is Retrieval Augmented Generative RAG Agent that complements the LLMs with an internal data using OCI OpenSearch to provide contextually relevant answers. The new OCI Data Science Quick Actions feature is a no-code feature of the OCI Data Science service that enables access to a wide range of open-source LLMs, including options from Meta, Mistral, AI, and more. The AI Quick Actions will provide verification and environmental checks, models, curated deployment models, a few-click fine-tuning tasks, monitoring of fine-tuning, and playground features. And then the Oracle Fusion Cloud Apps and Oracle Databases will be getting AI capabilities. The initial use cases are focused on summarization and assisted authoring, such as summarizing performance reviews, assisted authoring for job descriptions, etc., etc. Oracle Database 23C with AI Vector Search and MySQL HeatWave with Vector Store provide RAG capabilities to your prompts. And the autonomous database Select AI, customers can leverage an LLM to use natural language queries rather than writing SQL and interacting with the autonomous database. Uh, Oracle says they're not done yet, though, with uh, promises for several enhancements, including Oracle Digital Assistant, OCI language capabilities, document translation experience, OCI vision or facial detection, OCI speech, document understanding, and data science. Uh, and all I can say about this is, man, I thought Amazon was behind. Oracle's even further in the rearview mirror on these ones. Uh, all I could think say was, I'm more impressed you read the whole Oracle story. I, I did make it through. It was rough. Yeah, it's kind of impressive how far back they are, but what I'm more impressed by is a company of lawyers agreeing that they should actually sell AI because <laughs> most lawyers yeah. right now are like, oh my God, AI, ML, what do we do? So, <laughs> you know, yeah, slightly different uh, story, but, you know, well, good for them to get their lawyers actually to agree on something because paying your lawyers to agree on stuff is hard at times. I mean, do you think you can use that as an argument with your lawyers? Like, hey, the Oracle lawyers got on board. Why can't you? We'll let you know tomorrow. Oh, okay. Let me know. Yeah. 
I'll let you know. Follow up next week. Matt, did it work? <laughs> All right. Well, that is another fantastic week in the cloud uh, or in the Oracle world. AI is taking over. So it's great. Have a great week, Matt. See you next week. You too. Have a great week. And that is the week in cloud. Check out our website, the home of the cloud pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, send feedback, or ask questions at thecloudpod.net or tweet us with the hashtag pound the cloud pod. All right. We have an after show. Uh, actually, two stories, because I missed the first one in the in the Azure section, as you pointed out kindly <laughs> in the chat. Uh, but actually, it's probably, probably more appropriate for after show anyways. Um, so apparently on Friday and then again on Monday, uh, hug ops for the Microsoft Teams team. Uh, Teams died on Friday. Uh, well, I wish it was permanent. It unfortunately came back later that evening, only to fail again on Monday morning. Uh, you know, the nice part about this is the silver lining. I missed a ton of meetings, chats, and they couldn't record the meetings uh, because none of that worked. Apparently, Microsoft blamed the issue on a network outage that broke Teams. Uh, strangely enough, it didn't break anything else at Microsoft, just Teams. So I don't know what network they're using for Teams, but uh, probably not good. Whatever the issue was, uh, was limited to only Teams, and Microsoft shared that they were failing over in Europe, Middle East, and Africa regions. Uh, and apparently, they tried to do the same thing in North America to fix the issue that was not able to resolve it. I look forward to seeing the root cause analysis on this one. Uh, but the Teams team was really upset because they couldn't talk to the other teams on Teams, you know, because Teams is down because the Teams team sucks. Teams? Teams? <laughs> teams. Uh, yeah, the worst part about it was getting, you know, we use Teams at work and getting the notifications. Like I looked at my phone at like nine, ten o'clock at night and all of a sudden I would get like random messages. And I was like, and then like, or getting them in like completely non sequitur orders. And then like, you know, which wasn't possible. What was interesting though was the video calls still work. So, and I had a meeting in like the middle of it. I couldn't send a message, you know, Teams' primary purpose of sending direct messages to somebody wouldn't work, but the video call would. And I was kind of mind blown that that worked at that point. Well, I mean, that might have been working because I was on the Skype infrastructure, but if you had not logged uh, into Teams for that day, uh, you couldn't log into Teams to actually join that meeting. So, even though meetings were sort of working, it only worked for people who were already logged in. I was logged in. Yeah. yeah. But it was really great because uh, <laughs> there happened to be a awkward HR conversation that we were having between me and my HR business partner and someone else. Uh, and, uh, you know, the messages were coming out in such a weird order that I thought someone got sexually harassed at one point. I was like, I don't know what just happened, <laughs> but did that really happen? Because, like, did so-and-so do that? Like, oh, no, no, that came out of order. And I was like, oh, okay, it's, that would be bad. <laughs> so with, you know, hopefully, with HR on the line. <laughs> yeah, with HR in the chat room. Like, great, thanks. Uh, but uh, luckily it was a... Uh, just a snafu in the timing of it and that why it looked really inappropriate. It was not. <laughs> it was very benign HR issue. Oh, that's always fun. Yeah, I mean, I'm so curious why a network issue, you know, like even they said, like they failed over in some countries, which if it was networking, unless that they're running all their own infrastructure, I just assumed that they would just be running on Azure, but that made too much sense, I guess. Maybe they would break Azure if they ran all their workloads there. Uh, I wonder if um, it's probably DNS. I mean, like, there's calling a network DNS. issue. It's always DNS. So oh, and, or BGP. Let's be honest here. Oh, it could be BGP. But I mean, if it's BGP, I think again, it would be more than just Teams. Unless Teams, unless Teams, team, 
that's the team's teams doesn't understand latency and failovers and BGP routing. Like you have to reconnect things. But then, like, why wouldn't the failover work? Like, it doesn't make any sense. So no, there's so something I'm, else here that they didn't fully share in their PFR, and they actually do decent root cause analysis of Microsoft's from some of their stuff. You know, and hopefully they get to give a root cause because you know I actually weirdly like to read that because I get to learn stuff. Yeah, I love reading RCAs. Now, even if you make it private and we can't talk about it on the show, I still like to read it myself, just personally. Yeah. But uh, maybe uh, I'll keep an eye on the register. Sometimes they get leaked to the register when they get published. So maybe and then we can talk about it if it gets leaked. <laughs> That's just the best way. So. Yeah. Uh, well, one other after show topic, uh, Nicole Forsgren, who was one of the original creators of the DevOps Dora report, uh, you know, joined, I think it was GitHub a couple of years ago or a year ago, maybe now. Uh, she just wrote, wrote up a great blog post, uh, you know, alluding to her new research study that she's publishing uh, on the impact of the developer experience. Uh, the big focus has been on how to make developers achieve more quicker, of course, uh, which was once called developer productivity, then developer velocity, but now it's apparently being referred to as developer experience or DevX. Uh, DevX is not just about individual developer satisfaction. It directly influences the quality, reliability, maintainability, security, and software systems. And the recently published DevX in Action, a study of its tangible impacts, seeks to quantify the impacts of improving DevX at three levels, the individual, the team, and the organization. Uh, you know, in her little blog post, she said the overall research is very promising, and she did talk about a few uh, teasers that are, you can find in the report, which would definitely be worth checking out. And I can't, we can't talk about the whole report just because of copyright. But uh, first of all, is the flow state uh, basically the developers who had significant amount of time carved out for deep work felt fifty percent more productive, uh, and developers who find their work engaging feel they are thirty percent more productive compared to those who found their work boring. Uh, cognitive load developers who report a high degree of understanding with the code they work with feel 40% more productive than those who report low to no understanding. And developers find their tools and work processes intuitive and easy to use feel they are 50% more innovative compared to those with opaque or hard to understand processes. Uh, and the third option is feedback loops. Developers report fast code review turnaround times feel 20% more innovative compared to developers report slow turnaround times. And teams that provide fast responses to developers' questions report 50% less tech debt than teams where responses are slow. So uh, definitely dig into the deeper report. Uh, lots of good insights for those of you who are trying to help make your developers more productive. We're in DevX. DevX. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I like the three teasers. You know, I very much um, in on it is on a feedback loop conversation. You know, with a couple of play, play, people that I talk to, and I'm always like, look, you got to get the developers the feedback faster, whether it's compiling on pull requests, merge, you know, or a merge or giving them a quick and easy button to go locally, making sure that their commits, you know, if, if they're using pre-get commit hooks, you know, automatically clean themselves and your linting is in your pipeline versus, you know, on every commit. But that feedback loop to me is one of the best things that you can do for developers from a DevOps perspective. And if you can get, I think your developers, the feedback faster, that means you're not waiting for, you know, production to, or, you know, a full build or anything else like that deployments, you know, you're giving it to them right away, whether that is feedback is like, Hey, your build passes a linting or, and compile local, you know, at least quickly, you know, locally, you know, on a pull request or even just on a pull request, even building a full new environment, deploying it. You know, if you're doing a full DevOps CICD model, you know, building a full side environment, testing it, making sure it runs the smoke test and closing and destroying all of it. It, you know, that feedback to developers is immensely beneficial. I don't agree. I don't fully understand the flow state, but that's just me. I guess I have to read the whole report. 
don't know if you followed that one or not. I, I, I sort of did. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a lot of, a lot of news recovered this week. So I will let you go. See you next week. Bye everyone.